So let us start. We are in the Gospel of Matthew in the end of the seventh big paragraph. It's the last little paragraph still from the Sermon on the Mountain before the action moves further. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. This parable is of course referring to the transient nature of things, because for Jesus the rock is obviously the symbol of the divine, of the absolute reality. If you base your life on God, you build your house on a rock. If you base your life on the desires, on the innumerable desires of life, on the Fata Morgana, on the Maya of life, which keeps distracting you here and there, then you are like a man building the house on sand. The sand is unstable, it is transient, it is blown by the wind, and therefore... Here, the sayings of Jesus almost don't need any comment to clarify them, because he has said already that large and easy is the road which goes to perdition, and difficult and uphill is the narrow, and uphill is the spiritual path. That is why, look around yourselves and you'll see in this life that not many people have the clarity and the guts to try a spiritual path. For many people there are so many if and if and if, but what about this, but what about that, being confused and being drawn in all parts by so many things that people hardly find place for the rock. The rock in the life, the main thing, the solidity in the life, is of course the spiritual part. It is not that Jesus says, that you shall not do anything else. But he says about listening to this word and putting them into practice. It is easy that somebody has spoken about compassion or love or forgiveness or lack of judgment or tolerance, but it is another thing when somebody should put them into practice and actually do them in the daily life. That is why here there is almost not a parable, it's almost like again a warning. We can make many, many analogies with a rock because Jesus uses the analogy of building on a rock when even he calls Peter, Peter in Latin, Petrus, like being a rock and building the church on a rock. Therefore, for him, the rock is like Shiva, stable, the stability of consciousness, and in spite of the storm and the winds and the streams and the rain, 
all the chaos of this samsara, all the agitation of this manifestation, nevertheless, the house stayed. That means the human being will not be changed. The human being will remain with the divine values. And on the contrary, if you are not hearing to these words of wisdom, if you do not assimilate the basic values which have their root in God, then suddenly things will happen, things will come up and down, and then your values will change. I have looked so much in the years of my life, in people's lives, and I have seen for some people living in the country where I live, their life has changed completely, radically. Events, uh, social, uh, society, uh, all kind of things have changed. I've seen people who one year they are living in one social system and after three years they are living in a radically and opposite social system and therefore the values and everything around them, what was promoted in literature or in newspaper, in television or in media or whatever, was completely different and there were people who today they have been told that this is good and this is bad and they lived according to it and after three years or even less sometimes, this, the same people were being told that this is good and this is bad, and they just bought it just the same. That means they were like chaff in the wind, really. There was no stability. Whatever happened in the world, if suddenly the big hit was, uh, I don't know, the 11th of September and terrorism, these people became like parrots. They started carrying this idea and they were kind of got caught in the same thing, like this was the theme. Because this was in the newspapers, this was in the media, this was in the Hollywood thing, and they were like chaff in the wind. They had no personality. They were not on the rock. They were as movable as the sand. While, for example, a person who is on the rock, who is of the nature of the rock, will not be changed in that way. Such a person already knows what is right and what is wrong, what to expect in some ways, which are the divine values and so on. And therefore, for such a person, the winds, these tests which are brought by the wild nature of Prakriti, all this movement, all these wild energies, they will actually not destroy the stability. The house will not fall because it has been built on a rock. That is why what Jesus says is that without God, you are actually, you cannot have a real good life. You cannot have fulfillment because that's where everything is starting from. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. That's, of course, the difference between Sunday school, between all kind of other theory, theology, just empty words, preaching just like a dead message, and the real thing which is coming from one who has lived those things. The authority which came in Jesus is because he was what he was saying. He was not saying some things which he was not he was not trying to tell to people, love your enemy, be tolerant and don't judge, but at the same time he didn't love his enemies and he was not at all tolerant and he was not having any love. Then he would have not had the authority. This thing that he taught as one who had authority, it is because as Gurdjieff would say it, 
he was teaching from his essence. He was what he was teaching. He was not just parroting that teaching. And then, it's like the wave of this teaching was much deeper and he had the authority. It was an existential teaching. Remember that any one of you who tries to change the world or who will try to teach spiritual things to others, if you haven't done it, you are a parrot. You are communicating a theory which you have heard about and which can be true and actually you might be communicating a great truth and sometimes it can be that you tell a truth to somebody and that person listens to the truth and becomes even better than you at that truth because they apply it in life. But it can be that then your power will not be so big. That means one like Jesus can change people's hearts because his heart is there. One who is just telling it with the mouth intellectually He's telling it, but at the same time, he will not touch the hearts. People will not feel shaken. They will not sit afterwards and think, Wow, what about me? What about my life? How shall I do this? It's like it reaches mostly the intellect. It doesn't reach the essence. And the paragraph 8 starts already with further activities of Jesus, many of them being of a miraculous nature. When he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cured of his leprosy. He was made clean like this. Actually the word originally used for it is not leprosy but generally skin disease. It might have been psoriasis, it might have been other things. The original word by which this was translated in Greek is a very ambiguous word. It doesn't uh, define literally the disease which we medically call today as leprosy. So it's somewhere in the family of skin diseases. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Here, first of all, you can see very clearly that this man has the belief because he doesn't need to be convinced by Jesus. He comes and he kneels, therefore he is humble already and he says with full faith, Lord, you are, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Therefore, it is his own faith which generates the miracle. Jesus talked, but it is this man who got the root in whom this seed sprouted, and therefore he has the thing. And therefore all that Jesus has to say, he has to fulfill this great wave of faith. He reaches out and he says, I am willing, be clean. And thus the man is healed through his own faith. Remember that all the time you are going to see that Jesus is a master of creating faith in people and then letting them actually heal themselves through their own faith. He is more like a source of faith, but unless that faith is in them, it's like the laws of suggestion and self-suggestion. It can become yours only in the moment when the self-suggestion has become total. If somebody tells you you are clever and you inside you, you say, no, not really, it will never work. 
the faith means that you are like in this hypnotic state where you can say yes whatever has been said it is so I'm having this belief I'm prepared for it as a great mystery in this and you can see from the subsequent activity <coughs> that Jesus is at the same time very humble he says don't tell anyone that simply means he is not going to brag about it or anything he is just not at all doing that he actually says don't tell anyone and at the same time <coughs> he actually tells to the men integrate in the wave of the society pretend that God has healed you through the regular religion of the day so he says go and show yourself to the priest and give a gift in the way Moses has prescribed in the meaning act go to the priest and don't say that man called Jesus healed me say uh, through the grace of God I got healed thank God I would like to give an offering the way Moses has offered you see here that Jesus is having in the beginning a lot of good intentions of falling in the rhythm of just kind of giving way to the modality of the religion of his time he is not trying in this way to make a revolution he's just trying to upgrade it he's trying to update it to come with something which are simply an improvement like bringing the heart when Jesus had entered Capernaum a centurion came to him asking for help Lord he said my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering Jesus said to him I'll go and heal him the centurion replied Lord I do not deserve to have you come under my roof but just say the word and my servant will be healed for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this he was astonished and said to those following him. I tell you the truth I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham. Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth then Jesus said to the centurion go it will be done just as you believed it would and his servant was healed at that very hour first of all you see the faith Jesus doesn't say I will do it it says, Yours, it will be done just as you believed it would. He is again a mirror. He is channeling this incredible faith. And he says, if you believe it, it happens to you just you were. You come and ask me, but actually you talk to yourself. It is you who needs to be clarified on it. When you are clarified on it, then automatically the miracle becomes possible. You need, first of all, to believe. Therefore, this example is very beautiful because it brings a few new things. First of all, here now Jesus is dealing with a non-Jew, a centurion. The story doesn't say it's clear, but obviously this was a Roman subject because belong the centurion is part of the imperial Roman army. And yet, uh, Jesus is amazed, first of all, of the faith of the man. He says, what a faith he has. I haven't found anyone with, in Israel with such great faith. Therefore, 
suddenly you can see that Jesus starts contemplating of a mission which is spreading around. It is the moment when he starts saying this is not just for children of Israel. People from the east and west will come and they will be received at the table of Abraham and Jacob. I remind you that the Jews in that time, they still had, and unfortunately even after those events they kept on having it based on other issues, they still had this feeling of being the chosen ones, of being special, because I told you, in the middle of populations which were pagan, heathen, polytheistic, animistic, shamanistic, they were in the one nation which was monotheistic and which had indeed a proper metaphysical belief, an actual, meta, an actual spirituality, an actual total spirituality, at least in that area of the earth in the Near East where they were. And uh, therefore, it was like their version was the best, and therefore everybody else had to learn from them. They were a kind of having an ideal spiritual system to communicate to other people around. But now suddenly, Jesus says that doesn't matter because everybody is a child of God and people from the East and West will, will as well come and therefore suddenly it's not just that because you are a chosen one, everybody has the access to this information which I give. And on the other hand, he gives a stern warning which is indeed uh, bringing up a lot of controversy because again he is warning he says, but the subjects of the kingdom, that means those who were the chosen ones, will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In this way, he is sometimes warning that those people who reject this truth, those kind of high priests and others who wanted to stay on their manipuristic discipline, which was already becoming a histrionic, a fake thing in which nobody could be perfect in that way. Jesus is coming back on this at a later moment, as you will see. And basically, therefore, he says, if some people will not realize this and stubbornly and demonically will oppose this higher truth which I am bringing about the heart and the further evolution of the human being, that means you did well until now. You separated from this jellyfish environment around and you got a backbone. You are doing good. It's time to get out of the kindergarten and to go to the school, to go to the next grade. And if you don't go to that, it's like you are losing the train. You are losing the opportunity. You are not there. That is why he is giving an opportunity that the one, he is giving a warning that the one who was not chosen may be part of a greater truth and the one who believed he was chosen may actually be repeating the class, repeating the grade because he was unable to move from Manipura to Anahata. He is still imprisoned in his own Manipuristic trip and therefore he is like a pupil in school who did not promote the grade and he is like repeating the grade and repeating the grade until one day he will reach the evolution and the momentum to say, okay, it's time to know to, to go to the next level, it's time to go to the next grade. That is why this uh, is a beautiful thing. It is the moment when Jesus starts making this revelation of his universal already. He implies that uh, some people will understand his message, while some people will not understand his message. 
from wherever they are, from all over the world. Also, there is a beautiful implication in this. The faith of the centurion is so very beautiful because the centurion, he actually implies that what Jesus does, it is done with the power of some spirit because he says, I am myself a man under authority and I have people who serve and I'm just saying do this and they do it. I say go and they go. I say come and they come. And therefore he implies what you, Jesus, are doing. Here is not very much a yogic vision. It's more like a magic vision on things. That Jesus is seen by this man more like a magician. The implication is you must be having a lot of spirits under your power who obey to you. Like I am a centurion and I have a hundred soldiers under my command. You are a leader of spirits, of angels or whatever they are. And basically when you heal, you just tell to him, you, go and heal that one. And then you know it's being done. It's like the power which you have is happening through spirits, through high spirits, through servants of God. Why not through angels, therefore? And therefore, this gives a new dimension which shows a part of the action of Jesus. You have been warned by it that when Jesus was not attacked by the demons anymore, the angels came to him and they started ministering to him. They started serving him. Therefore, it, it involves automatically that any spiritual being who has the grace of God, either we talk about Buddha Gautama or we talk about Jesus and others of the great caliber, founders of world religions and such, they automatically have been helped by angels and the lots of entities. Therefore, in spirituality, very few people infer that when spirituality is being passed on, there are automatically also some spirits involved in it. In the invisible hierarchy of this universe, there are many beneficial spirits, some of them very powerful and very well-centered, some of them less, like, uh, weaker, but still of great goodwill. There are whole hierarchies of spirits which are serving the spirituality. There may be that even a human being who has been very spiritual in their life, very good-willing, very much wanting to serve, full of faith and devotion, maybe after their death, when they go in the astral body, maybe they haven't reached enlightenment because maybe their karma did not allow them to do too much spiritual practice. But at least such a person, especially relieved of the physical body and having a much more clear understanding of the laws of existence, now that I just shed my physical body, I am here like a spirit in the astral world and I understand what evolution is. I can see and I'm looking down and the people who are still incarnated on the earth and I see that they need a lot of help, they need a lot of guidance. Okay, I am not an angel, I am not a spiritual master to give them guidance by myself, but at least I could cooperate, I could go to some of the high spirits from Shambhala or the hierarchy, I could go to some of the angels and say, don't you need a collaborator? Don't you need somebody to help you? I offer myself. I'm supposed to be here for 400 years until I will reincarnate next in my life. 
Meanwhile, I would like to do some karma yoga. I would like to do something good while I'm here. Can I please help? Would you take me as an apprentice to help? And therefore, there would be a lot of spirit, which would not be perhaps angels or great masters, but which would still be spirits that wish to help. They do not help uh, individualistically. They help under some authority. Because if they start helping by their own ego, then it's catastrophic sometimes because they don't know really with what to help. They are not very wise yet and very powerful and their horizon is limited. Therefore, it's much better for them to go under the umbrella of a great master, of a great lineage, of some angels or something, and just to join hands to in this way to support a little bit. That is why <coughs> what you have to understand is that around spiritual beings, there are always one, two, three, or hundreds, or thousands, or millions of spirits, beneficial spirits, some of them of angel, archangel, whatever, very high class, and some of them even belonging to this class of smaller but beneficial spirits. These spirits act always. When you are going to go deeper into the mysteries of teaching yoga, you are going to see that even being a yoga teacher, it actually it involves interfering with some entities. Very few people coming to a yoga course realize what is happening in a yoga hall while you are being taught yoga. What kind of spirits are present there? What they do to you? What did they do to you three hours before when you were not yet in the yoga hall? how they were preparing you for coming to the yoga hall and what will they do to you three hours after you went out of the yoga hall and how they can still protect you and support you in your daily life. That is why this spiritual transmission is not just a thing of the mind. It is accompanied by an intense knowledge of the spirits of nature, of some hierarchies which exist, of some beneficial influences which are transmitted and uh, that applies in extreme measures to one like Jesus and in lesser and lesser measures to the lesser spiritual beings who also somehow have under their authority spirits which are there to help and which in this way they can be sent to various errands for thus fulfilling beneficial things. That is why this centurion, he immediately explicitates through this the mechanism through which one like Jesus works. He says, I don't need to come see how humble he is. Although he belongs to a race of conquerors and a centurion, he is not just a simple Roman soldier who could also be feeling proud. I am a Roman soldier. I belong to the master race here. You guys from Israel, you are under occupation. We are the rulers here. But he is a centurion. He is a ruler. He is having a hundred soldiers under his authority. So much more the reason for him to feel arrogant and proud. And yet in front of a simple man like Jesus appears to be to him, he is so humble. He says, I do not deserve you to come under my roof. Because the Jews in those days, they had this thing that you should not enter in the house of the sinners because you are defiled. If you step in the house of a pagan, of a heathen, of a Gentile, you are like defiled and then you have to go to the temple to do ablutions, to do purification rituals, because you have been defiled by the touch with somebody impure or something like this. 
And this man knowing, he doesn't, he doesn't even want Jesus to be pushed beyond his tolerance. Because Jesus, not caring about these absurd rules, he would say, of course, I'm coming with you, where it is, I'm ready to help you. And this man says, please, don't even force yourself, I'm not even asking you to come, I'm not worthy. What a humbleness, he is a ruler of military, and at the same time he says, I'm not worthy for you to come in my house. Such a humbleness, according to yoga, can come only from the heart chakra. So this centurion, whatever Manipura he has as a military leader, he is actually coming and acting on Anahata in this situation, and says, look, I'm just a humble man. I may be in the military, but I know my place in this world. I'm ruling over a hundred soldiers. Maybe you are ruling over a thousand angels. You are something totally different than what I am. But exactly as I can get the job done like this, you just say it, and that is it. I have the faith, I have the humbleness, I'm just asking you to do this job. And Jesus is so impressed by it, and he says, this is indeed a greater vision of the things. Understand, therefore, something about the transmission of spiritual influences. We are not living in a dead universe, we are living in a universe where there is a lot of interaction, of spiritual interaction as well. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and, she, and began to wait on him. When, everything, when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken to the prophet Isaiah. Quote, he took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. That is at the same time a suggestion that some of this thing was coming on him. He like shouldered it. He came, it came on his shoulders. Here you see the great healing power of Jesus. In the Bible this is presented absolutely miraculously. It always sounds like Jesus was just snapping fingers and people got healthy like this. There is another gospel which is not in the Bible that is called the gospel of truth. And it is uh, one of the apocryphal gospels. And in the gospel of truth, as well as very much in another one which is called the gospel of perfect life or the gospel of the twelve, there are two different texts. In both those, there are references to the fact that actually Jesus had a very elaborate system of working with energy. Even the seven chakras are allusively mentioned, although they are not called chakras, of course. And there is a lot of mention in the Gospel of Truth about healing methods that Jesus advised. Diet, fasting, intestinal flushing. Yes, there is an absolutely uh, flabbergasting definition of the way Jesus was putting water in a big uh, hollow pumpkin and from there the water was going through a flexible reed through a plant which was hollow inside and actually you are supposed to stick it up your anus and in this way actually to get an enema, to get a colonic. So actually the gospel of truth speaks about Jesus doing diet, uh, a lot of other things, uh, fasting, colonics and God knows what other things. And then, of course, can you heal a, a skin disease like a leprosy or a psoriasis with colonics and things like this? It is enough for you to open the 20th century book 
of Dr. Bernard Jensen or others who are talking about intestinal cleansing and to see people with rashes and terrible things such as leprosy and psoriasis, they do every day one enema, they do the equivalent of a Shanka Prakshalana and in a week their rashes start disappearing. That is why sometimes remember that there is the tradition that some of these miracles didn't happen just like this. Sometimes they took weeks, actually Jesus was doing a kind of healing, yoga, dieting, he was asking people to contribute. Maybe that was a measure of their faith. If you have the faith, do what I'm telling you to do and you will be healed. And then with a little bit of Holy Spirit, with a little bit of blessing, with the, with the faith of the person and with the value of those healing methods which work also through themselves, then basically the healing process was encouraged. And in this way, Jesus, because else you would say, but this Jesus is a real lucky one. He all the time seems to meet only people who have a tremendous faith. On one hand it is true that Jesus had the talent to create faith, but on the other hand it is true that the faith of these people was perhaps not always 100% and perfect. But Jesus, even if their faith was smaller, he had the talent of giving them a method uh, intestinal flush or something which with their faith was becoming like a spiral I have a little faith I do what you told me I feel better and therefore my faith is increasing because I say wow you are actually cool you can do it man this really works then my faith is becoming bigger then it's like a spiral a positive spiral in which more faith gives more healing more healing gives more faith and in this way I'm going the right way that is why I remember that although some of these healings of the lepers and others may seem just like finger snapping, sometimes the truth may be that it is omitted from the Bible that Jesus was using some modalities in some of them which were even taking time. And the fact that he uh, drove the spirits, this shows him to be an exorcist, this indeed is a spiritual power, and he says he drove out the evil spirits with the word and healed all the sick. Using the word is either a clear reference to mantras, there is an equivalent of mantras in the Kabbalistic science of the time, and whatever Jesus picked up from the Orient, from India and Tibet, is also a whole science of uh, mantras. And uh, funny enough, there is a similar thing, because the Kabbalists had these things with mantras, codified under the divine names and other such Kabbalistic things, in which for an angel, it was enough to know the name of that angel, and the name of that angel will be like the mantra of that angel, because the name of that angel was created in a special way, by a special pattern, by using the Hebrew letters from some sacred text, and mixing them according to some numerological rules, and thus you get names such as Mikhail, Gabriel, and all those other great names of angels, archangels, and so on. And therefore, uh, with a name, it can mean either the Kabbalistic use of divine names, which is again a kind of magic, already a kind of natural magic, or at the same time, it can mean the use of words of powers, such as Amen is the most simple of them, but at the same time there would be many others, many of them coming directly from the art of mantras from India. Actually, 
this story with the word, healing with the word and the others, was very much promoted after, because all the followers of Jesus later, they were actually trying to, they, were cho they chose to do it, and they noticed with amazement that it worked with the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus in later times, it became even a famous prayer. It is the essence of the prayer of the heart, which is the repetition of the name of Jesus for awakening the soul, for awakening the heart. And at the same time, miracles, many miracles, some of them quoted in the Bible in the Acts of the Apostles and others quoted in the history of Christianity have been done just by repeating the name of Jesus. There is an incredible story of, uh, I think, uh, the Saint Sylvester of Rome, who did, it was in the time of the Roman persecution, and uh, at some time, uh, Sylvester, who was a Christian saint and who had already reached the power of miracles, the power of prayer, he had been, he was subjected to a challenge, because the Christians were killed and so on, and then he said, but he accused them for doing injustice. And then uh, some of the Roman priests, some of these people, some of them necromancers, uh, people dabbling in the Roman and Greek mysteries, worshipping uh, Jupiter, and you know, pe the priests of the time who were sacrificing a hundred buffaloes to Jupiter, uh, doing all kinds of rituals like this, they claimed that they could do as much. They said, what's your, the big deal about your thing? Because we can do just the same thing. Where is your great power? That means you heal, we heal. I can also pray to Jupiter and do a sacrifice and then the person will get healthy. What's the big deal? Why should we take this alien thing of yours? There is nothing into what you do more than we can do. And then Sylvester was actually challenged to a public uh, contest in which if he wanted to stop the persecution, that means to stop people from being killed and martyrized, he had to stand up for what he believed, and he had to show that the God which he was worshipping was actually more than the various Roman gods, and all these rituals and mysteries and all kinds of things like that. And Sylvester was put together with the biggest priest of the time, the biggest magician of those times, a name which I don't remember, something like Zenobius or something like this. And this guy who was Zenobius, it was that they, the contest, like in the times of Moses and the priests of the Pharaoh, was that uh, the contest was if they can say a word of power which can kill a buffalo, which can kill a bull in one go. And this uh, Roman priest, he came into the Colosseum or wherever this was happening in a public arena. It was, again, in one of the great Roman times. And uh, the history says, the legend of the day, the story of the life of Sylvester, uh, of Saint Sylvester, says that this guy came and he approached the buffalo. There was a wild bull tied there. And this guy approached and whispered one word in the ear of the bull. And the bull fell down like hit by lightning. It died instantaneously. This man was able to say a word and to kill the bull with just one word. And the animal fell down like struck by lightning. And now everybody was curious what was going to happen because the best which, which uh, um, 
Sylvester could do was to equal this feat. I mean, perhaps he was able to do the same thing to the second bull waiting there. But what Sylvester did was shocking because he went to the dead bull and he just whispered the name of Jesus in the ear of the dead bull. And the dead bull came back to life, it resurrected, and the miracle was that it was not wild anymore. It started licking the hands of Sylvester and became gentle. Therefore, by this is the power of the name, just saying the name of Jesus with faith by the one who has it, could bring back somebody to life. The same is happening in the Acts of the Apostles to Peter himself, who is performing a miracle just like that. This is the power of the name, and that is why when it comes, it all starts from Jesus, that Jesus healed by saying a word. He was drove out the spirits with a word. This sounds really like the supreme magic. It is something between mantras and indeed the divine thing. The Kabbalists of the time already had this belief that there exists a secret God, a secret name of God, and only 999 are known, and the thousands of them is hidden, but nobody should pronounce it because that would bring the, just one word being said, and it would bring the end of the world, it will end the cosmic cycle. And therefore, for fear that somebody should hit on this word by accident, and that the end of the world should come before its time, they actually forbade the people to say the name of Jehovah. They just took the name of God, of the, the Tetragrammaton, the famous letters Yod, He, Vau, He, which could be read in a multitude of ways, and being like the skeleton of a mantra. And basically you are not supposed to say it with loud voice, because they had the feeling that you might hit the right one, and that will make you enlightened, but will bring the end of the world as well. It will finalize the cosmic cycle. Therefore, this belief in the power, in the mantra-like power of the word, is an ancient belief which has survived in the Kabbalistic lore of the Jews, and it is exactly showing the continuity that Jesus is using something like mantra, like Kabbalistic words of power, and this was continued later, because the followers of Jesus, they said, what powerful word you want, more than the name of Jesus himself, who was God on earth. You want a powerful name? Say the name of Jesus and everything can be done through that, if you have opened up to that name, if you have prayed with that name, and if you have the faith of it. And that is why in history, many uh, miracles have been done just with one name, just with one word. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. That simply means he ran away. He didn't really like this thing to continue and continue. Obviously, until people would walk around the lake, he would cross and kind of get lost in this way. Then a teacher of the law came to him on the other side and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This is an amazing saying, so modest, so humble, which basically comes to that where he says, don't reap and don't uh, toil and do not weave and do not make cloth, live like the birds of the sky. He says, I myself am a total hippie. Look at me, I am a total hobo. I don't have a house, I don't have a place to be. Even the foxes and the birds have a place of their own. 
I'm coming from nowhere and going nowhere. That is why he's, he says, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I don't even have my house. I don't have a place to retreat, to withdraw, to retire myself. I have got nothing. I am like the wind. Therefore, where do you want to follow me? You want to follow me where? I haven't got any place to take you to. Therefore, Jesus here is giving an amazing lesson in detachment, an amazing lesson in humbleness, where he shows he is indeed detached from. He came on the earth for a mission. He is definitely not a citizen of this earth. His place is not here. He is just passing by like the wind. He doesn't have a nest. He doesn't have a hole where he belongs. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. This indeed is one of the legendary strong ones of Jesus, where Jesus shows such a contempt, such a carelessness to the things of the world, that even this Vadistanistic thing that I have to go and do this, he wouldn't do it. He simply says, imagine what it is in a traditional society where people had respect to the family, respect to the elders, respect to their parents. Jesus is even telling him, don't even go to the funeral of your father. Don't even attend to it. The, bury will, the dead will bury their dead. It's like it's two different worlds. I am inviting you to live at a different level of energy, to be indeed a chosen one. Everybody will think about you that you are heartless and a monster. Imagine the village will say, Walter was such an asshole, he went with that other hippie and both of them are going around and he is such an asshole he didn't even come to the burial of his own father. What an insensitive man. What a monster, you know. And the guy who took him must be another one of the same kind. Both of them completely cold, completely heartless. Because people, that's what people call a heart, but that's the heart of the attachment, it's the heart of the Hollywood and Bollywood, it's the heart full of other things, it is the heart looking down, not the heart looking up. Like this symbol was very beautifully done in the Kashmir Shaivis, that the heart is like two lotuses, one down and one up, and that's the secret place of the heart. That means half of my heart is looking down and half of my heart is looking up. Jesus is obviously going for the upper part of the heart and he is therefore uh, preaching something which can sound cruel. Like, mean what? This guy was not even going to the uh, funeral of uh, uh, his father or whatever. It's kind of, it sounds really heartless, really terrible, really... Like, what kind of loving person is this? And yet, it comes from perhaps the greatest apostle of love on this planet, the man who really knew what love indeed is. That is why the love, the way Jesus describes it, is sometimes amazing, because he's not even giving, he says, well, the dead will bury their dead. That means out there there is a world of ignorance where people live in a telenovela. People live in a world of passions, in a Hollywood, Bollywood world, agitated by their own things, and they would like you to play ball. You just have to be a good son to show off that you are an Ushedatir, perhaps, 
and so maybe you are not sad at all. Maybe you rejoice that your father has died because he has gone with the angels and he is in a better world. But those people will never understand why you dance and laugh at the funeral of your father because they will think you are heartless or crazy. And therefore, yeah, Jesus is coming with a different world. He is simply suggesting a different kind of values where yes, even joining the funeral of your father or whatever, is nothing else but a formality. It's just another social formality because actually you are not helping your father by going there. If you really want to help your father, you can pray for him, you can help him in other ways and that will do much more than going there and playing the social role of the obedient, loving son who came to join the funeral of his father. Not that it's forbidden. You can play it, but at least this man was a rookie and he couldn't do it the right way. You want the opposite of it? Shankaracharya, the great Adi Shankaracharya of India, who obviously was as enlightened and such a great spirit, although he himself said that the sadhus, the people in orange, they should not, they have served their funeral, they have served the funeral of their parents, they should not attend to the religious obligations of the day, like if somebody in India has become a sadhu, it's like they have no mother, they have no father. They don't need to fall into this vadistanistic, worldly thing. They have to focus on their own practice and spirituality. At the same time, Shankaracharya himself, when the, his mother has died, he went and performed the funeral rites for her. And many of his contenders were irritated and they considered that that was a downfall and they said, see, this man is a hypocrite. He said to other people that they should be like this, but look at him, when he's coming to him, he's actually doing it and so on. The reason is that Shankaracharya was so detached, so evolved spiritually, that he could as well do it or not do it. He had reached at the level of saying, Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman, I am God. He had reached to the level of Baba Samadhi, he could be fully involved in action and at the same time fully detached and spiritual. Therefore, he could play the game because he was over the top, he was already uh, realized spiritually. But else, Jesus to another one who is not realized spiritually, he is actually cutting deep and say, he says, cut this theatrical thing that you are just going to go and play the loving son or whatever. Focus on what is important, even if for the rest of the world it is scandalous. It is obvious that when a guru, when a spiritual teacher is coming and teaching so extreme attitudes, obviously the whole world will be against it. You can believe that all the relatives from the family of this man, they got very angry at Jesus and they have said, this man is a crazy idiot and he took our brother and taught him also some of his crazy shit, brainwashed him and so on, and now they are both going, this man is evil. That means uh, they simply goes Badistanistically. And they will say, well, what would have been the great deal if he just allowed him a day or two to come to the funeral, you know? It wouldn't have been such a big deal. All the evolution of this man was depending on this. Couldn't they have just made a small rabat uh, you know, was it so important to produce pain to his mother and to all the relatives and to look such a terrible and to make such a scandal in the whole village and couldn't they just, I mean, did they really need to be so provocative? Jesus apparently believes, yes, 
they needed to be so provocative. You need to push it and that will kind of anger other people because it's like black and white. Jesus at some point, I don't remember if it was before, but it will come after again for sure. He says something which means my presence in this world will oblige people to choose. That means I didn't come to let the waters mix like here. I'm going to choose the wheat from the wheat. It's kind of black or white this time. You are with me or you are against me. That means I'm going to push it to the limit where you cannot ride on two horses or sail in two boats or serve two masters. I'm going to make it impossible to serve two masters. So either you are with God or you are with the other one. Choose. And in this way, to this man, he's giving exactly such an extreme position. He's pushing it to the extreme level. And therefore, in this way, of course, the people who are anti-divine, as you will see that Jesus says it so very clearly later, it's normally that they hate him. That's why this creates a very clear polarization. Those who love God and they wish to go that way, and those who reach to feel, ah, this is too much, this is really too much. And then they start hating it, and they say, this man, Jesus, he is simply too much. You cannot go that way. This is very relevant in this way. And let us continue a bit. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. He was crossing the water. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. Although it's just a lake, the Sea of Galilee, at the same time, this violent tropical type of storms which hit these tornadoes can be really impressive and for a short period of time they can create mayhem. Many people ask, what a big storm was it on a lake which sometimes is almost dried up and so on. Actually, if you understand the tropical climate like the storm last night here and so on, you actually know that sometimes they can be really extreme and yes, indeed, there was a danger, there was a phenomenon of nature which might have been really intense. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are going to drown. He replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. First of all, you see that although there was such a large storm, Jesus was sleeping. He was like in the bosom of his mother. He was like completely confident. The boat was taking water and the others were alarmed, but Jesus was sleeping. This shows like a complete surrender, a complete confidence. He was not, he, he was supposed to be the one who would be the most sensitive, the most attuned to things. If there would be any danger, of course he would be up there. But no, he knew the nature of God was not going to kill him. What was the great danger? And therefore, he says, I am calm. Why do you need to be alarmed? Why do you worry uselessly? This is the hand of God. If God wants to strike me dead, I will be dead whatever I do, with fretting or without fretting. Therefore, why should I be worried about this? And he has his communion with God, and he knows, therefore, that that is out of the question, that his time has not come, that God doesn't want him dead. And therefore, he is fully confident. He managed in an almost miraculous way to stay asleep in the middle of a storm, which is almost drowning the boat he is in. 
and when he is, when they finally disturb him, he basically rebukes them by saying, why are you not like me? I gave you an example, I'm sleeping. Lie down and sleep, all of you, why do you worry? Sleep just like I do, where is the big danger? If I sleep, you sleep, you'll go where I go. Be with me into this. But they couldn't, their doubts were there. They started seeing miracles, they started seeing big things. Still, it was difficult to really believe. And that is why the only thing he can do is actually to stop the storm. And like a genuine magician, he stops the storm. Now, it's true that this kind of desert storms, this kind of uh, tropical storms, I don't know if you've ever seen in India or in some other place, also here, some of these sudden tornadoes which come and in half an hour they are over, in ten minutes sometimes are over. Uh, indeed, sometimes they start without warning and they hit you like the wind and then they stop like it. So it is obvious that after this episode, which is a ten minute episode or whatever, the storm might have calmed down by itself. But fact is that Jesus is manifesting this God-like calmness. He is not at all disturbed by it. And apparently, actually, his intervention calms the wind and the storm. And indeed, people start realizing that this must be a pretty special kind of human being who is so confident and at the same time can influence the wind and the storm. When he arrived at the other side in the region of Gadarenes, there is a comment here, some manuscripts say Gergesenes or Gerasenes, whatever that is. It's the opposite of Capernaum, that would mean the south of the Sea of Galilee, for those of you who know the geography of the place. When he arrived there, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. So, there were demon-possessed people coming from the tombs. That means they are living in tombs, they are living outside of the village, they are living in the wilderness, they are people living more like animals, like living in some holes of the ground. The tombs of the Jews at those times were holes in cliffs. They were like small caves, like small grottoes. So these people were actually living somewhere like animals, like this. And this animal behavior is something which has something to do with the demonic you will see it becomes very obvious in a second. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. That simply means they were aggressive as well. They were attacking people. Quote, what do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Very interesting teaching in these words. First of all, that the demons, they recognized him. Nobody has recognized yet Jesus as Son of God. But the demons who have a higher level of knowledge, because they are astral beings, they immediately can see through. And they see that the man with power has come. The others cannot perhaps see the aura of Jesus, feel his energy or presence. Yet, for them, Jesus is another dude. But the demons have another presence. They have another perception of reality. And therefore the demons possessing these people, they immediately felt it. And they call him by the name. They say, what do you want with us, son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? What a sad story this is. It shows that the demons know that they will be tortured at some point. And actually their life 
is a bit of a torture already because two wild people living like animals, only God knows what they are eating and living in the filth of some grottoes and howling like the animals and attacking people and just growling and being violent, they definitely couldn't be happy. There is nobody who would be happy in such an existential condition, at the same time having a human heart, a human soul and a human spirit. And yet, these people were living there in their own little hell. Those caves were their own little hell. And however they knew that the worst is yet to come. And therefore they say you came here to torture us before the appointed time. Like the appointed time would be perhaps the day of the judgment. The day of the accounts. Or the day when we are going, when these bodies are going to be dead, and then we are going to get the karma. Because try to realize, if a demon is possessing a human being, and he is taking an innocent human soul, it's true that human soul may have his own karmic problems, but that is not our problem now. Everybody suffers because of a good, well-defined reason. But if that man is there, and the demon comes and takes him and turns him into a ruin, turns him into a fiasco, turns him into damaged goods, turns him into an animal that lives in a cave, of course the demon creates karma. The demon is a being of this universe, and actually the demon is possessing abusively a human being, and that's an act of aggression, and therefore it entails karma. Therefore the demon is now possessing this being because he can't hold himself back. He is evil and he is wicked and he wishes to possess, to do the act of possession because that gives him some satisfaction, some animal satisfaction as you can see. The demon wishes to, exp to experience filth, an animal existential condition. And he is doing that, therefore he is screwing the life of that man and of course by this he is accumulating a great evil karma. Sooner or later, the body of this man that is possessed will die. And then at least for that miserable soul that was incarnated in that body, which was possessed, his ordeal will be over, more or less, because at least he will say, my God, I had a terrible life. I lived 60 years, and for 60 years I have been demonized, and I had hell in my life. But at least I was on the receiving end. I did not do any evil. I just was suffering because I had a bad karma. But the demon, he is the one who is doing it right now. He creates new black karma. He creates new bad karma. He creates a new terrible thing. And when the fun is over, now he's having fun because he's possessing someone. As much as that can mean fun. But sooner or later when that, when that body will die... The fun is over, and then the demon has to go back where it came from, and there his karma is waiting for him. And therefore, he says, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? That means, my time will come, but why did you come before? It's like, my time has not come yet. So you see how clear the demon is about the destiny and about what is going to happen. And in spite of the fact that he knows, he goes head forward. Some human beings, in spite of the fact that they know that taking revenge is wrong, they still go and take revenge. Some human beings, in spite of knowing that hating is wrong, they still hate. Some 
that means it's a little bit like demonic, you know. I know I'm going to, I'm doing the wrong thing, and I know I'm going to create bad karma, and I know I'm going to bait, bite the dust, and I know that I'm going to be tortured sooner or later. And yet, like a stupid git, I keep on doing it for a mysterious reason. And therefore, Jesus is exactly here to correct this. Look what a painful lucidity these demons have. They understand their existential condition so clearly. They know what's going to happen to them and what they do. And yet they do it and they cannot escape their determination. They are what they are and they don't know any way to stop this resonance. And therefore, the demons immediately feel it. And basically, remember also that this idea is clear, they feel the presence of a spiritual being like a torture. That is why this is very important to remember. If you feel the presence of a spiritual being, now it's true, it's difficult to say who is truly spiritual, but if you feel the presence of a spiritual being, a person who is kind of spiritual, if you feel the presence of such a person as a torture, that's a very, very big question mark, because that shows that something in you suffers to the presence of it. It's like some mole which is not used to see the light, or some owl which lives in the darkness, and suddenly you turn on the light, and the mole says, you are burning my eyes, I can't take the light. This is a big question mark. Why can't you take the light? We are supposed to be beings of light. If you cannot take a beautiful presence, then things are a bit dubious. I remember once, I have been in a situation where a yogi uh, in the western world, coming from uh, the eastern world, was very undiplomatic, a little bit the way Jesus would have been. It was an absolutely hilarious situation. Uh, they were in a house of a Danish girl, and this Danish woman, she actually was a yoga teacher, but she was the kind of Danish type of yoga teacher. She was doing yoga as gymnastics. So although she pretended herself to be a yoga teacher, unfortunately she was neither wise, nor spiritual, nor, nor very kind, nor very good, nor very loving, nor very forgiving. She was actually a pretty problematic person. She was a person full of inhibitions and uh, aggression and all kind of other confusion and so on. And she still posted herself as a yoga teacher. And then this yogi, being like this, there was an absolutely funny situation. There was uh, this woman, she had a dog, a black dog, a quite a kind of a Labrador retriever or a cocker, I don't remember, one of these uh, black dogs. And this dog, this dog in the presence, when they came in the house, this dog was barking, was very agitated. And she said, oh, it always when pe foreign people come in the house, He's a little bit afraid because he doesn't know them and so on. Don't worry, he will get calm and so on. But this dog actually continued to be agitated even over 15 minutes. And after half an hour, this dog was still barking and growling and it was hidden under the staircase and, and so on. And she said, I really don't... Then, you know, this Vadistanistic person, they would never see the truth their way. They would probably say, man... You must be some wicked people, you know, because my dog is barking at you, you know, and it's kind of, my dog is holy, you know, it's kind of my dog, 
is barking only at bad people and you know I have brought in my house a lot of guests and my dog felt comfortable with all of them and it's kind of what's wrong with you people that my dog is barking and uh, she didn't really say it like this but it was a kind of like uh, well I don't know what's wrong with this dog and then this yogi who was definitely not a politically correct yogi he told to her actually what's happening, he kind of splashed it completely, mm -hmm. kind of did the complete act of uh, irreverence to this woman who was so narrow-minded and living in her own small cup of tea and she couldn't really accept the truth. He said, actually, he said, according to the old laws of magic, you should know that the souls of all animals that are black are having some infernal connections because of their color. And therefore, he says, the soul of this animal is very disturbed because I entered this room, because I am a spirit of light, and this soul feels tormented in my presence, in my presence because of the spiritual energy which I bring. Of course, it didn't make him very popular because that woman hit the ceiling. You know, here was this guy telling her that her beloved dog with whom her kids were playing was a soul having touch with the hell because it was a black dog, you know, and all it was needed for him to say that the black people from Africa have the same, because then it would have been hitting the fan all the way, you know. And it's kind of, imagine this woman, Danish, modern, westernized, suddenly there comes a guy and says, your dog is disturbed because I'm coming from paradise, and this dog of yours is a bit of a hellhound, and uh, actually, uh, you know, it is producing him a disturbance. That's the kind of... Uh, uh, relationship with between the light and the darkness that we are speaking about. And the story continues. Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs were feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, I mean they knew it was coming, send us into the herd of pigs. This is a very, very instructive thing. That means the demons if they were not in this body of humans that they were treating as animals, where could they go? They didn't want to go out completely, right? And they simply said, send us into the pigs. It is very, very so significant. Not only that the human being can sometimes be termed as a pig, the very non-flattering truth is that probably you have heard it before, genetically and anatomically the pig is the closest animal to the human being. So for example, if you need a valve to replace in your heart, you cannot take it neither from a chimp, nor from a gorilla, nor from a cow, but you can take it from a pig. You can use a heart valve from a pig, because simply the pig actually resembles with the human being a lot. That is why killing a pig is so very noxious karmically and eating the flesh of the pig is considered to be one of the top abominations and this shows also that exactly as the nature of the pig is quite piggy unfortunately the human being is quite piggy so sometimes we sit and shake our heads and we say why are human beings such pigs there is an uncanny resemblance between the human being and the pig and by studying the pig you can understand the human being sometimes better, <laughs> the behavior of the pig. That is why the difference is not so big actually. Un unfortunately, it doesn't speak well for us human beings. It doesn't say that we are very spiritual creatures in this way. I told you from the very beginning 
that the spiritualists don't consider this planet to be a very high or spiritual place. Maybe this planet is not the lowest planet type of world, loka as the Hindus call it, that there can exist, but at the same time it's definitely not the highest. Look around the kind of world we live in, the kind of filth and confusion and cruelty and all the other things which happen, and you are going to see that we live in a pretty hellish world. There have been so many documentaries done. I have seen a couple of excellent ones, such as Mondo Cane, which means in Italian, the world of the dogs. There have been two of them, and another one which is called uh, uh, This Violent Planet, and a few others I have heard, some of them I haven't seen. And when you look at them, it really makes you cry, because you realize that we live in a world which, although it has the beauty of nature and a lot of other things which can look like paradise, at the same time, we human beings often make a hell out of it. And because of this, remember that the difference, unfortunately, is not as big as we would wish it to be. And therefore, remember also, here is an incredible thing. Why should the demons want to go into pigs. If the demons say, you are sending us out, but don't send, just let us go into those pigs. Uh, it shows very well, and you should remember that, that the demonic nature is an animal nature. That is why many things of the animal, they are actually connected with the demonic. And that is why it is a very funny thing to look at that in the high grade spiritualities, Actually, the high-grade spiritualists, while they do have a compassion towards animals, they do not mingle so much with animals. That is why all the more primitive cultures, shamanism and animism, they worship animals, they worship totems, the great bear, the great eagle, and they think that's a big deal. Well, according to the metaphysics, Actually, the animal nature is already pointing towards the demonic. And therefore, here there is a lot of things which can be pointed to. I'll give you a simple technical one. According to some of the informations from the Vedic tradition and the Tantric tradition, the levels which we call hell, the infernal world, the aspect of infernos, are sometimes related with some levels of energy which are even lower than Muladhara Chakra. And then they have noticed that most animals, unlike the human being, they don't have just a spinal channel, which is the Kundalini channel, the main channel which goes from Muladhara to the top of the head, but they also have a tail. And the devil has a tail also. What's the tail? The tail is the negative part of Sushumna Nadi. It is the spinal channel going down to the resonance with the health. That is why when you have a tail, you potentially have the possibility to be in resonance with the demonic, with the dark, with the infernal. That is why you would not see a spiritual being having a tail. The tail is classically an attribute which shows connection with the nether world, with the worlds which are under the levels of harmony. And that is why the animal level is sometimes considered demonic. For example, even in the Hebrew tradition where he comes from, 
the devil himself, one of the names of it is Belzebub or Belzebub, which means is supposed to mean in ancient Hebrew the Lord of the Flies. The devil is the god of the flies, is the lord of the flies. You don't understand it well, go in the Palestinian desert and spend one day and see what the flies do to you. And then you'll understand why the people in that area have called the devil the lord of the flies. Because if you try to pray or meditate, the flies will kill you simply <coughs> in some places. And it's kind of, it's like the devil preventing you from praying and meditating. It's kind of it's the ultimate nuisance, it's the ultimate disturbance. Everything is infested by this. Surely today we have chemical methods, mosquito nets and other things, but we are talking about a culture which was more defenseless in front of this, and they took it the natural way. That is why, yes, many things of the nature would be considered demonic. That is why many of the Christian mystics, many of the Buddhist mystics, when they looked at the Benpa of the Tibetans, when they looked at some of the animistic rituals of the aboriginals from Australia, or of the shamans from India, or some of the things from North America or South America, they've looked at them and said, right, this is true, this is a form of natural magic, but it puts you in touch with all kinds of inferior spirits of nature, with the spirits of animals and others, and those will not give you enlightenment. On the contrary, that is why the Indians even developed, I was telling you this weird thing, uh, that I don't know which Rishi got attached to an antelope, and while he was supposed to live alone like a hermit, he actually was having some antelope around his house, which he was feeding. And when he died, actually I don't know what happened, and he got worried that who was going to feed his antelope, because she was locked in a barn, or whatever. And therefore, says the legend, it's a parable, obviously, but some of the truth is there, he got so worried about his antelope, that in the moment of his death, instead of thinking about God, he thought of the antelope. And says the story, because of this he could not reach enlightenment in the moment of his death, and actually in the, pre in the next life, he got reincarnated as an animal, as an antelope, because he died thinking antelope. He died with the concept of and with the vikalpa of antelope in his mind, and that was what created his resonance for the bardo and for the next life. That's a bit of an extreme story. In practice, things would not happen as extremely and as simple as that, but it's a story which is meant to be exemplary, like a warning to all the others. Don't do that, because it may connect you with animal frequencies. For example, the wizard and the witches, they were living with a lot of cats and so on. The cat is typically the animal, especially the black cat, of course, is the animal which a witch would have because it's kind of creating those frequencies. That is why the funny thing is that the spiritualists love animals. They have compassion for animals. They sometimes it's very funny when you are a spiritual person to look at how sweet a dog can be or how sweet a cat can be, but you never want to get too close to them because you are actually trying to break away from the animal nature. We have been animals. We just broke away from our chimp condition or from our pig condition for the case. And we are trying to grow wings. If we hug an animal all day long and sleep with our cat in the bed, then we turn back to the animals instead of going towards the angels. 
evolution is that way, not that way. That is why sometimes in yoga when we see some people having too much organic attraction to animals, we have to stop them, we have to warn them and to tell them, hey, take it easy with the animals, chill it out a little bit, you know. Your life is not meant to be spent with animals. I have met people who thought that dogs are wonderful and they can love you so sincerely and human beings are shitheads and horrible and you cannot... It's kind of, what kind of life is this in which you can love a dog but you are afraid of human beings? You think that human beings are horrible and perverted and the dogs are okay. This is definitely a wrong kind of set of values. This is definitely a wrong way of believing, a wrong way of feeling. Therefore, remember that there is a great teaching in this because here you can see very clearly the demon nature put together with the animal nature. That is why there are many, there are many, many things. For example, in the old tradition, people always gave to animals names of demons. I don't know if you are aware of this, but in many traditions, as soon as a religion took over, people were called Tom, Dick and Harry, and animals were called Azazel and whatever. The animals were given actually names of demons, funny enough. The animals were not given the name Charlie and Mary. The baptismal name, the human names, are reserved to the human spirit. The animals are given names which are never given to human beings. It's true, it doesn't happen like this because we live in a confused society. So in the last 50 years or 100 years, we have hit the rock bottom of spirituality and we are completely confused and we live in a Kali Yuga which is so demonic that of course you will hear that some people have baptized their dog whatever, Charlie or John or whatever. That was not considered correct until a hundred years ago. hundred years ago, the names of the saints and the baptismal names, they are considered to be reserved for the humans. And for the animals, there were a certain set of names. I am even sorry that I, cannot, I could tell them to you in Romanian. I know what the Romanian peasants call their dog or what they call their cows and, or their horses. They do have names, indeed because Romania is a very archaic country and a lot of these things have been preserved still and people live in a very mythological way sometimes in a very old days type and I am sure because I have seen glimpses of them that it was the same in any other culture in the Scandinavian or Anglo-Saxon or Germanic or whichever other culture if you'll go and observe the first one who called attention on this was of course René Guénon the great uh, milestone metaphysician of the 20th century who showed exactly this difference between the animal and the human and the fact that the human being is like a butterfly coming out of a cocoon. We are still very much animal. That is why many mystics, especially in Christianity, but not only, their dream was how to shed our animal nature, how to become more like angels. We are still very much animal, but we would like to become superhuman, we would like to become angelic. And therefore, a lot of things derive from that. Well, here it is shown very clearly because the demons say if we are not in a human being, we might as well be in some pigs. It's okay with us, but we'd like to be around still for a while because the demon, of course, he wants to possess. He's having an agenda. 
maybe you didn't realize it and those of you who have learned about the Mahavidyas, the Mahavidya Yoga, they know already this because it is explained in a conference there, in a lecture there, but those of you who are younger in yoga, they don't know this, that the demon, first of all, he wants to be on earth. The demon is a spirit which is frustrated to be roaming through the astral world and not to have arms and legs and dick and tongue and whatever else and to do the things. It is exactly, imagine your situation. I am a person completely addicted to what? Chips, for example. And I'm, I'm really addicted. I'm one of those persons uh, savagely addicted to my chips. I just need to have chips. Even when I'm 70 years of age, I must have my daily drugs, my chips. In the moment when I die, that addiction is in my aura. It's like the addiction to cigarettes, if you prefer. Let's take it this one. It's even more scary, right? And in the moment when I die, the addiction of smoking cigarettes is in my aura. But I cannot smoke cigarettes when I'm dead because I haven't got fingers and lips and lungs and cigarettes. I cannot catch them with my physical body. So how am I going to get that wonderful sensation that I got when I was smoking cigarettes? I cannot. And therefore the only way in which I could is that if I am powerful enough, I can invade somebody who smokes and make them smoke more. I can possess somebody for 10 minutes and say, you know what, out of the 20 cigarettes you smoke every day, this one is for me. Get out of here. I want to feel this. That means I need a body and then I need to borrow a body. That's what demons do. They borrow bodies for fucking for running, for smoking, for eating, for whatever. They need a body because they want to fulfill some animal desire and they are not patient enough to wait until they will be incarnated in the next life because their desire is so intense and because they are powerful, if you are not powerful, you sit and suffer and then you are in hell. You wait for a cigarette for 400 years. You wait for sex for 400 years, but because you are yin and you are weak, you can't get it, and then you are a victim. But if you are a bit manipuristic and solar, then you are not going to stay and wait for it for 400 years. You are going to go and get it. And this is what the demon is. is a bit of a more powerful spirit, who is already manipuristic, solar, whatever, and he can go and get it. If, you, if the nature doesn't give it, he goes and gets it. And then he is simply invading some innocent one. Innocent. He's not completely innocent because on the other end of it, that innocent one had the karma to get it, this coming on him. So he is not completely innocent in the great picture. But nevertheless, from the, from the standpoint of the one who possesses, he doesn't know. He simply knows, I caught a weak one. I caught a victim. Now I've got somebody. And that victim, I can possess him for 15 minutes every day. In those 15 minutes, that person will do a lot of things. Like one example would be like sleepwalking. Sleepwalking is actually a phenomenon in which you are not conscious what you do and usually other spirits fiddle with you. That is why if any one of you is plagued by sleepwalking, you should try to curb it by doing laya yoga, by eating more yang food and things like this, because you are yin and when you are sleepwalking, you are under the power of an alien entity which is moving your body without your consent. And if that entity suddenly gets wild and kills somebody, 
you will wake up after 15 minutes with somebody bleeding in front of you and dead and you will not know how you did it or who did it. And then you will go to jail and actually the demon did it and now the demon is laughing of his great action. And therefore, uh, remember that of course the demon always wants to possess. Of course the demon would like a new life and therefore the demon would like to possess you 24-7. But that is not always possible. That is a very rare occurrence. The demon possesses you sometimes. Even people who are schizophrenic and who are having severe alterations of their personality, cases in which this possession becomes really severe, then somebody is schizophrenic. You read this kind of things in the newspapers. I don't know if you didn't read it. I was reading it in Denmark every day almost. was happening something like this. Like a crazy mother strangulated her both children and then shot herself in her own mouth. It's kind of what kind of person would do this? This is a demon possessing that woman. That woman is schizophrenic and because she is schizophrenic she is possessable and a terrible kind of demon possessed her and played this terrible game and then went out of her. She was in her 25 minutes of hell and in those 25 minutes she did the inconceivable. When she comes back, she's sorry. Why did I do this? I was not even aware. Something took over me. My mind got completely blasted and so on. Remember that these things are not black and white. There are many shades of grey. So sometimes you can get possessed by some things which are mild. They are mild. That means the demon is starting with 1%, 2%, and then this can be pushed to terrible levels such as a complete form of possession. And that is why I'm telling you all this to understand the nature of it and to understand that you see even these demons here, they said you are casting out of the human beings, at least give us some, because even existing in the body of a pig is for us better than to send us back to our astral world. We need some action, we need some tingling, and we cannot get that tingling if we haven't got a body. Therefore, we need to do something wild. These demons obviously liked violence, they liked aggression, they liked to hit, and that comes immediately. You will see what they did in a second. That shows what kind of spirits they were. He said to them, Jesus then, said to them, Go! So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died into the water. Basically, these demons, they pushed the pigs to commit suicide. The woman who shoots her children and then shoots herself in the mouth. It's kind of an act of madness. It doesn't make any sense. <coughs> it's like self-destruction, self-hate. This is what the demon is. The demon hates itself. The demon just wants to do ugly, terrible things, painful, whatever. This is the demonic nature. It is a mixture of the animal and it is the mixture of the wicked or evil. Therefore, as soon as the demons were put in the pigs, no, they couldn't just graze. They needed some action, right? They needed to do the wild thing because when they were in these people, they were howling like the wolves and nobody could pass through that area without getting attacked. They were having a lot of fun. But now in the pigs, what fun? Just to sit quiet and to make... That's not fun, right? The fun is to make them jump into the water, to make something really wild happen. And they did it. Of course, afterwards their adventure was over because the pigs drowned and those spirits were back to step one 
they couldn't even think. You know, you would say, wow, why did they fuck it up so quickly? Couldn't they have just waited for a few days to enjoy some more existence? No, the demon is not logical. He needs it now. He is greedy. He has to do something. He's like completely irrational. He's like an animal. There is no waiting. You cannot, if you put food for a dog and you say, uh, Rex, wait. And the Rex wouldn't wait. Rex is all over you. He has to eat right now. And you say, Rex, do it. Well, no, not yet. And the Rex is all over you and so on. You really have to scare it or to tame it to condition it by taming, to by education, to be able to make the dog to tell him, lie down, don't move, and so on, and then you do the thing. And therefore, it's the same here. The demon is an untamed animal. It just knows now. No, no, there's no, no waiting. It's just completely possessed by it. You remember, therefore, that the untamed animal nature is having something of the demonic, this for those of you who are tempted to fall in love too much with animals. We are not going towards animals. We are going towards angels. The animals are behind us and it's the stage of evolution that we have surpassed. Ah, that you can love animals? I also smile a lot when I see puppies playing or kittens or whatever. Animals can be delicious, but we never forget who we are and where we come from and to where we are going. Well, I should have finished it anyhow, but... Change it. I was intending to finish after the, this paragraph. Here we have the spectacular action, right? The demons come out of the men. Probably the men are getting hesane. And now the pigs jump into the water. And it's a whole spectacular action. Those tending the pigs, there are other people there, ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. It's very interesting. The people didn't like it. They got afraid of it, which says a lot. They got afraid of a man casting out the demons. Also, these pigs were theirs. It was their area. They were eating pigs or whatever. And at the same time, the demon-possessed men, they belonged to their village. They belonged to the same area. There is a connection there. The people from that town were not very far from those two demon-possessed people. Because when Jesus did that, they didn't like it. And they said, no, we don't want guys like you around here. Just go. It's kind of the presence of Jesus, mysteriously, was disturbing. They could have rejoiced and said, wow, you are the man who drove the demons out of the... Come and eat in our homes, you know. We like to see demon chasers around here. Are there any more? Can you help us to clean all this town of everything that is demonic? No. These people appear themselves to be a bit of a demonic community. A bit of people low grade and it's not a confusion, it's not a coincidence that all these things happen in their area, in their city, in their neighborhood. There is a synchronicity, there is an 
some people say, tell me with whom you associate, so I'll tell you who you are. It's kind of, it's a resonance. Company defined. Those people were there. It was their company. It was their area. And therefore, this shows very interesting that the spiritual frightens them. And actually, they choose, they asked Jesus, they pleaded with him, please go, please go. We don't want your kind around here. That's not a very good sign, obviously. I will stop here. We just finished the eighth paragraph. We'll continue next week from paragraph number nine. Let us see if you are having any further questions or issues about this, after which we'll part for tonight. It is already quite late. Please. Well, can you just give, a, give an opinion on uh, something like the Harry Potter series, which is, which is a mainstream uh, book, and, and that sort of effect on, uh, on children? Ultimately, in a spiritual way, it doesn't have a good effect on children. Neither Harry Potter nor the Lord of the Rings. Just to put them both in the same. They are both two environments where there is no God. There is only power. Magic powers. Good and evil, yes. But within a limited scale. That's very Promethean. It's like the, it's like the doctrine of humanism. We are not interested in the devil or in God. We are interested in the human being. That Luciferianism or Prometheanism, that uh, it's like the existentialism of Jean-Paul Sartre. I don't care about God, I don't care about the devil, I care about the human being. That's a big lie. It's a kind of a deception that if, if you say, oh, I'm not a Satanist because I don't believe in the devil and I don't believe in God. and I don't. But if you don't care about anything, then where is the evolution? Where is the purpose of life? Where is it? If you don't give to God any place, then where is everything? You lost everything. If you are not with me, you are against me, automatically. Therefore, when they say that, they actually place it on the other side, but they do it with honeyed tongue and with elegant words, like, no, don't treat me like a Satanist, you know? I am not a dark uh, person, and so on. But actually, the truth is that it is so. That is why, much, especially in this Anglo-Saxon environment, there appears this kind of literature promoting witchcraft, natural magic, forces like this, mysteries and elves and gnomes and so on. But there is the core is missing. The silver thread through the whole thing is missing. It's not there. And the silver thread is exactly our relationship to the creator of the universe. It is exactly our metaphysical destination that we are destined to reach enlightenment, that there is a meaning to the human life. All this is lost, if I'm just uh, talking about it. That is why I must admit that uh, uh, I've been watching both these movies. The Harry Potter, I've seen the first one, and it was more than enough for me. Uh, I actually, it's the only movie in my life where I managed to fall asleep during the movie. I was tired, it's true. But I never fall asleep during things. But during Harry Potter, I didn't resist more than half of it. Then I saw it again, because I wanted to see the missing half. But it was incredible. And I've seen The Lord of the Rings, all three of them. And it is very clear, I, when I read The Lord of the Rings, I have noticed immediately this kind of thing. That exactly the metaphysical string in it, it is not there. We are talking about a chaotic world of powers and so on. Really, when I'm reading uh, The Lord of the Rings and uh, Harry Potter, it sounds to me like I'm joining a Freemasonic lodge, really. It's all about occultism and things and so on, 
but exactly the reverential respect towards what is sacred is replaced by something really, really dubious. At least dubious is the word for it. That is why I think that indeed they are not good. They don't cultivate the real spirit. Nobody talks about prayer, about surrender, about devotion, about real love, about humbleness, about evolution, about what we are supposed to become, about giving our lives to it. Everything about all kinds of things which are intermediary and which belong to this world of magic and powers and spirits and things like this. This is not the answer to the human. These are more close to witchcraft, they are more close to shamanism, they are more, more close to animism, to this and this in themselves. They are not the answer to the spiritual evolution. How to behave when there's people around who obviously dislike spirituality, like in all ways? Like being scared? It depends who you are and what you want to do. You have to see your position and report to them. If you are there to shake them, shake them, give them a cold shower. If you are there to provoke them, and if you are there to take a cross on your shoulders, provoke them and they will kick you really hard and then you will take a cross on your shoulders. If you are having absolutely nothing to sort out in that environment and it is not your life mission to do something there, then it's better to just run in parallel worlds, you know. Let them be. Bhagavad Gita says very clearly, the one who knows should not disturb the one who doesn't know because the one who doesn't know will get aggressive if he's disturbed from his sleep and do more evil afterwards to him. Therefore, those who want to know, let them come. The information is here, you can find out. Those who don't want to know, nobody brings them by force in a meeting like this. They stay out there and drink their whiskey and soda and they feel happy with that. And nobody goes to knock at their door to bring them the good tidings. Because they get irritated, simply. And that irritation is not serving anybody. But if it is your mission or if that person means something special to you or if you feel you have a karma or a destiny, a dharma rather, to do that, then take responsibility and shake it. No, it is impossible, because then God would not be alone. would not be able to speak about one God. There would not be unicity. There is no pyramid with two tops. A pyramid can have only one top. That top can be either one or the other. That top is the absolute, it is God. That is why only in some legends, in some anecdotic stories, it seems that the divine and the diabolic compete with each other. And it's like, uh, you know, equal forces, light and darkness. In practice, that is not the correct relationship between them, because they do not compete with each other. The characteristic of divinity is almightiness. If God is almighty, what can stay in the way of almightiness? Nothing. The devil can create any trick it wants, and God can dispel it just like this forever. God can actually dispel the devil himself, just like this, if he is almighty. Is the devil come from God? Yeah, we can say so. Ultimately, in an indirect way, yes, the demonic force exists in this world through a kind of permission from the divine, because it has a part to fulfill. It is like the opposite side, which gives us the dialectic. 
it's like you choose. There is a game of light and shadow. Without shadow, there will be no light. You will not understand the light. That is why the evil is necessary in this world, although you don't have to follow it. It is there as the contrasting part, which is testing you, challenging you, tempting you, showing you what is the wrong part, and in this way it actually gives the real value of the spiritual life. But the divine is not equal to that. The divine is above that polarization between these two things of light and shadow. That is why God is like a, a quantum leap above. It's something else. And that is why you cannot compare something from the third floor with something from the second floor. No, it's like two different realities. And it's only for the purpose of making people understand that sometimes you have this kind of dialogue that uh, God and the devil and they are talking and God tried to do something and the devil tried to do something else. These are stories, these are fairy tales. These are like storytelling in which they com we communicate through a, a parabolic way, through a metaphoric way, through a fairy taleish way. In parables, we communicate some fundamental truths of the universe. It's the method of storytelling again. But they are not to be taken literally because they are. Is it there like an action? The diabolic entity is actually materialized, concretized in an entity. That means there is a representative entity for that. So, human karma is going worse and worse, like the bottom line is, is already made? You mean the deepest point of the abyss is already drawn, yeah. You cannot fall deeper than that if you want to put it like that, which is comforting, but it's pretty deep, the abyss is pretty deep. I never understood why, after Jesus died, and he died from the sea of humanity, and because he was so bad at that point of history, why was his death afterwards, it been even worse, I mean, it's not been... No, it was not even worse, because I said that in the beginning when you are not here, it's because Jesus took a spiritual karma, a karma which forbade people to see this truth that we are speaking about now, and for which for people will become like, no, no, it can't be like this, no, it's unacceptable, no, no, I don't understand this thing, and so on. Then suddenly somebody comes with a magic and cleans the mirror of your mind a little bit, and actually say, well, you know, Actually, it sounds, yeah, yeah, this man has a point. It's like suddenly you can understand, you are allowed to understand that kind of karma, which is essential, which is governing our lives. Jesus did not come to take the karma of people having skin diseases or the karma of people doing violence. That was not the meaning of it. He took a karma which is much deeper and which is much more relevant, therefore. The karma of the diseases, this could disappear in much shorter time if people just did the right thing and they didn't produce any more evil karma. If people would love their enemies the way Jesus said, then there will be no more diseases in ten generations, because the karma of the previous ones will fade away, and suddenly there will be no more, because not any new shitty one is being produced. But unfortunately, of course, that is just an ideal for the time being. That is why, remember that you don't realize what the world would have been, should Jesus not 
have shown up in the world because the world was going down big time the Greeks were completely perverted and down the drain dabbling in absurd philosophies like today the modern philosophers they dabble in some two penny philosophies most of them the intellectuals and the others already fallen in some homosexuality and everything and their society was basically a cold confusion and the Romans they were violent starting with Julius Caesar until the end of the Roman Empire in the year 300 and something history says that there hasn't been there has been only one emperor and that was uh, this philosopher one from gladiator Marcus Aurelius exception made of that one there was only there was none who was mentally sane that means all the Roman emperors were mentally handicapped starting with Caesar who was epileptic and then continuing with others much worse such as Caligula, Nero, Messalina, Siberius and all the others who were schizophrenic, paranoid and all the others fully demonized people when you've got a demon to run an empire and everything is so terrible the way it was and these people killed and whatever and they reveled in the fact that it's true, we kill them, we kill their culture, we kill their religion, but we brought them roads and schools and aqueducts. But the human life is not about schools and roads and aqueducts. That's exactly the point. That's exactly what Jesus would say. Destroy the roads and the aqueducts and sit down and meditate. That's what life is much more about. That means these people brag that they brought something material. What's the big deal about that? But they are destroying the soul. And therefore the world was going down big time, big time. After Jesus came, after in the times when Christianity indeed blossomed, the people of those, they abandoned a lot, a lot of things. For example, just take this, I think it is from Constantine, although it might be from another one of the great emperors of that time, who got converted to Christianity. One of these great Byzantine Roman emperors of the time, he had a bad... I think it is Constantine. He had a bad skin disease, a kind of leprosy or psoriasis or something like this. And he couldn't get away of it. And then he had alternatives. One of his counselors, one of the people he was speaking about was a Christian. And they told him, pray to God. God will forgive you. This is a punishment from God. Get baptized. Become Christian. Humble yourself. And God will help you because God is almighty. What's a skin disease for God? It's nothing. It has happened in the time of our Lord that many lepers have been cured and the dead have been raised from the graves and so on. And the, uh, one of the other counselors was a guy belonging to the Greek mysteries. A magician, a wizard, you know, going with all these kind of creepy solutions. And... This other guy came with a much more concrete solution. Terrible temptation for such an arrogant emperor, a man used to kill people like this, for whom people could die like numbers. This other wizard, magician, shaman, whatever he was, guess what solution he gave him? He told him that he consulted with spirits, and the spirits told him that the skin disease of the emperor could be healed if he would take a full body bath, in young baby blood. So he basically had to kill some hundred kids to get their blood and to bathe in it. And this man was tempted. He was this close to do it, this emperor. 
because there was a concrete advice that means who cares about 50 kids of some 50 anonymous peasants who anyhow breed like rabbits and they will make 50 others instead and why not do it I am the emperor I am important right for me it's worth spending it and so on and he was this close to order the murdering of 20 kids or 50 or whatever to make for him a royal bath of blood and then he suddenly realized because he had been conversing with the other one that's the magician's solution that's magic right bathe in blood or whatever and then because he had had discussions with the other one who was a Christian counselor he suddenly realized that God would really not like this one that this is a total lack of confidence in God and that you are resorting I mean you are going deeper by murdering just for attempting this and then he simply said no I refuse to make, to give such pain to, to 50 women, to 50 mothers, to give them such pain as to kill their babies. I will not do that. Even if I have to be ill for the rest of my life, I will not take such a beastly solution. And actually after that, I don't remember the detailed story, through prayer or something, he was healed. And this is how he got converted to Christianity, because he realized it. This is the problem. The world was very, very bad at that time. Today, it's coming back. That means, uh, I don't have a blackboard here, but they say it's like the world was going down, beyond the plan, below the plan of God, and Jesus came and put it up again, restored it, and now it's going down again, because uh, we are decadent the way we are. But many of the things which have happened in the 20th century, not as technology, but as human quality, as greed, as materialism, as deceit, as lies, as treason, and as all of the others, they were already doing it in the time of the Romans, and in the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, and in the time of the Greeks, and so on. If Jesus wouldn't have come, and if Shambhala wouldn't have supported with other great spirits, this humanity would have been today much worse, would be really, really deep. The fact that we are here is actually taking into account all the good influence that Jesus, is not the only one, but perhaps he is the most significant in history, that Jesus and all the others have brought to this planet trying to keep it on a certain standard, on a certain level of spiritualization. That is why you are not seeing the picture properly, because actually what Jesus brought did a lot of good. Example, people today they rely on medicine, on medical science, right, and on doctors. And we often complain in yoga. Medical scientists is sometimes so narrow-minded. They come with such rude solutions. They have such primitive things and so on. There are good things to it, no doubt. But there are also so many horrible things, so many terrible solutions and so on. Well, you know what? In the time of the Greeks and the Romans, there were great doctors. The history of Western medicine, it starts with the Greeks, because the Greeks did not believe in God. They needed doctors, not God, to heal themselves. Therefore, we have Hippocrates and Galen and Avicenna and whoever, other, all the great doctors of antiquity. And you know what happened after the year 300? The medicine disappeared. Because in the Bible, Jesus says, you want to get healed? Three or four should gather and pray and make some oil. We will hear it in the Bible. 
That means Jesus said, if you are to be healthy, let God heal you. Why do you want to heal yourself with some dubious power coming from Tom, Dick or Harry? Don't you trust God? Don't you trust that God can make you healthy? If you want, if you are healing without God wanting, isn't that to go against the will of God? Heal yourself with the will of God. Because if God wants you healthy, there is nothing which can stand in the way of God's will. And if God doesn't want you healthy, there must be a reason for it. So stay where you are and learn your lesson. Therefore, after the 4th century, the whole Western culture, until the rationalism of the Catholic Church in the 12th century with Thomas Aquinas and others, there is no more hospitals, no more doctors, no more medical texts, nothing. Everything was burned and there was only one doctor, Jesus, God. This is the doctor. It is an interesting change of thing, you see. A society which is going very materialistic suddenly forgets about all and says, you know what, forget about all those things. We go to God. This is an interesting thing. That is why in those days, many people say, yeah, but you know, people were trying to destroy this knowledge with herbs and herbalism. And I myself do not agree with that. I love herbalism and alternative medicine. But remember that if I would have to heal with the will of God, and if I would have to heal with herbs, I prefer the will of God. That means the will of God is a much superior method to cooperate with this universe. Why should I believe in chamomile when I can believe in God? Why should I heal myself with chamomile when I can heal myself with God? That is why it is a, indeed a superior attitude to believe in God to such an extent that you can say, fuck the chamomile, God is my medicine. Then it is the ultimate there. Then you live with God. If you die, you die, but you die with God as well. Life and death are irrelevant at the level of such a faith, at the level of such an existence. And that is why it's difficult to understand, but actually the world, you know what, the rationalists, the Renaissance people, actually Renaissance being the beginning of the fall of humanity, again back in rationalism and materialism, they say that in the year 700 or 800, the Western world was in the dark ages. Why were they dark? What was dark? People had a lot of faith, there were not so many wars, there was a lot of spiritual practice. What is dark? Dark is that people didn't do anything else. They were focused only on this. And then the rationalists say, ah, that is dark. We want some action, you know. There were no Satanists around. The world had no spice. We need some salt and pepper to the history, you know. That's kind of, you know. It was not dark. It was spiritual. The dark ages are actually very spiritual ages. In the dark ages, you wouldn't have had a person coming to you and saying, I swear by God that things are like this and tell you a lie. Like many people go today in court, they lay their hand on the Bible and they say, I swear to say the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And then they just pour out a bunch of lies. In the year 800, Anno Domini, nobody would have done that because people believed in their immortal soul and they knew that if they would say a lie and swear on it, their soul would be doomed to hell and they would defile their soul. And people had so much respect for their soul, they would not lie under oath, they would not give their word. How far we are from that, how much more decadent we are from that. That is why the Dark Ages were not that dark. There were people with a great belief who were singly focused 
on their spiritual things. But for the people of today, where the culture is run by so many demonic forces, we are trying to ridicule them and to say, oh, they were all too fanatic, we are cool. We are not that cool. We are just a bunch of dirty bastards reveling in perversion and war and cruelty and all kind of lies and so on. What's so great about what we are doing here? Nothing of what we do is an invention. Even democracy, we brag in politics, that we have democracy and it's a big conquest. The bad news is that the Greeks have discovered democracy 500 years before Christ and they tried it for 500 years. 500. We have tried it for 220 years by now. The, and imperfect as it is. And the Greeks have tried it for 500 years. And after 500 years, they threw it to the garbage. They said democracy is sucks. It's not the answer to the world. And therefore, they simply said, we tried it, been there, done that, and it generates the most terrible results in the end. Therefore, we are just doing the same. Somebody is pushing us in repeating the mistakes of a society which was already decadent, and at least it had the decency to acknowledge its own failure in this. That is why uh, here there are many, many things to say. Please. Why not in mass? Because simple people were very spiritual. Maybe the rich assholes were not that spiritual, but they were 1%. Okay. So if you have 99% which are cool, why, why do they need to be rich? The purpose of life on earth is not to make you rich, it's to make you spiritual after all. So they were spiritual. So did Milarepa. So this was their choice, because if they wouldn't have liked it, they would have made a revolution. People in those days, they accepted their faith. You understand? They knew, I am like this, I will be like this. Because even the Apostle Paul says, if you are a slave, be a good slave. And if you are a master of slaves, be a decent master of slaves. The Apostle Paul doesn't say you should destroy slavery. He doesn't say that. He says, be decent whatever you are, and be very spiritual reach enlightenment, that's the problem, not to make a social revolution. That's why we move the problem in social terms, while the problem is spiritual. The problem of the human beings is not a social problem, it's a spiritual problem. not really true. I also considered myself one day very spiritual because I'm doing yoga and one day when I was going in a train I met with a simple peasant woman from the countryside in Romania who told us that uh, she was scheduled to have an abortion because she had a rare thyroid gland disease and although in Romania abortion was forbidden in the communist times she got permission from the doctors. The doctors recommended that she should undergo an abortion because she was in danger of dying as well as her child. 
And this woman, because being a staunch Christian from the countryside, she said, I never believe these doctors. They don't know what they are talking about. I believe in God. So she said, I kept my pregnancy. My baby was born. He lived 10 days. I got time to get it baptized. It died baptized. And here I am. So I didn't need to stain my hands with any blood. I didn't kill my child. When I heard this woman going against the whole medical system and taking her own existence in her own hands, I bowed down with respect and I realized, were I in her situation, I don't know if I had so much confidence and faith to put my life on the line like this. Therefore, remember that people today, they say they are concerned of spirituality, but they don't have even one-tenth of the faith of the people a thousand years ago. People a thousand years ago, they really had faith. We are rationalists. We are all over the place. Cartesian doubts are filling our brains, not faith. There is a great difference. We don't have that freshness. No. I'm not believing, first of all, that animals are automatically demonic, but that some of the psychological features of the animal, they are more towards the demonic than towards the angelic. In the meaning, like I gave you a simple one, the animal can hardly refrain itself from sex or from eating or from whatever, while, for example, a human being can very well do that and do it deliberately. Mm -hmm. So in the animal there predominates an instinct which you are just shrugging your shoulders and say, what you know, it's just an animal. I don't know now how to tell you how instinctual the dolphins are and if they can control themselves and how much awareness they have. But uh, I would say in all the effects of it, it still shows that the dolphin is inferior to the human being on the scale of evolution. Therefore, if you would ask to, uh, tell to ask me which one of these two animals is more close to the demonic, I would say that the dolphin is closer than the human animal to the demonic still. Although the human being is doing all the abominations which a dolphin doesn't do after all. But the dolphin hasn't got the freedom which the human being has got. Well, it's enough for tonight. It's late already. We'll continue.